Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And let's return to um, uh, the series that we're going to be in and up till Christmas. And by the way, I, I saved the birth until guess when? <laughs> but uh, this morning, I'd like to read you from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You follow in your copies as I read. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that, oh, that endures forever. Gang, one of the distinctive features about the Gospel of Mark is his economy of style. Uh, as you know, uh, Mark is the shortest, it's the briefest of all the Gospels in the New Testament. Um, and the, the classic illustration of his style can be seen in this story. You, you can see his linguistic economy in this, this story about the temptation of Christ. For instance, Matthew tells the same story, and he uses 11 verses to tell it. Luke tells the same story, and he uses 13 verses to tell the story. <laughs> Mark tells the story. He takes two verses. And he gives you only the, the briefest or the barest of essentials. He tells you that it was immediately after the baptism... He tells you that it was initiated by the Holy Spirit. He tells you the place, uh, the wilderness. He tells you the duration, 40 days. Um, and his only unique feature uh, that is not in the other two accounts is the fact that Jesus was with wild animals. Now, gang, I, I have chosen um, Mark's account of this event in the life of Jesus on, on purpose. And let me explain. The reason I'm, I, I chose to read Mark's is because... For a preacher, if you read one of the longer stories, uh, the Matthew or the Luke account, uh, you are oh so tempted, or at least I would be oh so tempted, so tempted to, to preach four sermons. <clears throat> one sermon for each of the temptations, and then one of the kind of overview, um, summary kind of things. But uh, I'm not going to do that. I resisted that temptation in light of this present series, and we're only going to preach one. And that is this overview, summary kind of um, treatment of the whole temptation experience. Now, gang, I'm assuming for the moment that you know the story, the story of his temptation. But just in case some of you don't, let me, let me tell it to you real quickly. Right after Jesus was baptized, he was driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after 40 days of of um, fasting, Satan arrives to tempt him. And there's three separate temptations. The first one says, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the second one is, uh, the second temptation is, uh, if you really want to make a splash, throw yourself off the ledge of the, of the temple. And uh, people really will follow you then. And, and, and Satan says, and God will give his angels charge over you. And Jesus says, um, man shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And then the third one is, um, you really want this, uh, these, these kingdoms and all their glory? I'll give them to you. Hey, just, uh, I'll tell you how to get them. 
Just, uh, just worship me, says Satan. And, of course, Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord, our God only. That's the story. And it's a fascinating one, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm not the only one that's fascinated by it. Um, you know the name John Milton? Does that name ring a bell? <laughs> it should. That is, if you, if you studied any English literature or English history, John Milton, uh, he was a 17th century English poet whose pen was oh so instrumental in, in the, um, the overthrow of King Charles I in 1649. You remember that? Which led to the English Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell. Any of that ring a bell? <laughs> well, um, Milton, at the age of 49, went completely blind. And he wrote, in his blindness, his most famous work, which is, of course, you studied it, Paradise Lost. Got it? <laughs> well, um, the, the setting, the location, the backdrop of Paradise Lost was the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. Milton used Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, as his backdrop for his epic work where Satan tempts Adam and Eve and Adam fails. Now, interestingly, four years later, Milton writes a sequel to Paradise Lost. Remember what that was? By the way, he's still blind. Um, it was entitled Paradise Regained. Now think about it, guys. Um, you wrote Paradise Lost and you used the Garden of Eden as your location. So now you're going to write Paradise Regained. What would you choose as your location, your, your setting, the backdrop? Maybe, maybe crucifixion. Maybe um, resurrection. When Milton wrote Paradise Regained, the setting, the backdrop, the location was the temptation of Christ. In the perspective of John Milton, paradise was regained in this temptation experience. And I hope you'll understand more of why before we're finished. He's not the only uh, famous author. Um, Theodore Dostoevsky, in what is considered the greatest novel of all times, Brothers Karamazov. In, in the Brothers Karamazov, there's this section in it. There's this, it's just a long chapter, which is hugely famous. I mean, if you read very much, guys, you're going to, any Christian author eventually is going to refer to this section in, in Dostoevsky's book, and it's called The Grand Inquisitor. It's just a long story that one of the brothers of Karamazov tells, Ivan tells it. And it's a story of a, um, of a 16th century priest in Spain. And um, his city is visited by Jesus Christ. And this priest has Jesus arrested and put in jail. And so the priest comes to um, meet with Jesus Christ. And the subject of their discussion is the temptation of Jesus Christ. And the priest gets all over it. 
telling how stupid he was and how poorly he handled the temptation and how he, uh, he should have thrown himself off the ledge and on and on and on he goes. I guess all I'm saying, guys, is that great literary minds have been captivated by this event. I'm not the only one that thinks it's crucial in an understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something else about it. It is the source of huge theological controversy. Did you know about that? Uh, here's, one of the, here's one part of the controversy. Um, you know, we, we say that Jesus is God, don't we? I do. Um, I mean, <laughs> every piece of orthodoxy I know says he is, uh, that he is God incarnate. Well, then, can God be tempted? Really? Tempted. Oh, that's huge. We don't have time to talk about that one, but I'll tell you another one. Uh, the, other, the other part of the controversy has to do with the existence of a personal devil. Because this story certainly suggests that there is indeed this, this spiritual cosmic evil that is embodied in a demonic being. Now, um, very few people in our culture today believe in uh, in a personal devil, uh, which suits the devil just fine. He's always helping to circulate the news of his non-existence. But the, the, the interesting part, at least to me, the same culture that rejects the existence of a personal devil loves angels. Seventy-nine percent of our culture was uh, polled, or those polled, seventy-nine percent of them said, they believe in in angels. I mean, we got a television show touched by an angel with Della Reese. <laughs> um, you see, in, in the mind of our culture, the good ones exist, not the mean ones. No, no, no. Satan is just a symbol of evil. You know, guys, we could get into that stuff, and I don't think it would be fruitful for you. Um, it will be fruitful in another setting, but, but I don't have time to get into that this morning. Um, this, this event is important, in my opinion, for other reasons. Um, and l- let me tell you what's going on, guys, and then we'll take a look at it. There are two kingdoms, and they're both after your heart. And the heads of these two kingdoms are locked in a titanic showdown out in the wilderness. And the stakes couldn't be higher. This collision between Satan and Jesus is inevitable. Because both of these, both of these kingdoms, they demand the same kind of allegiance. Your heart. That's what they're after. Now, um, back to the um, one sermon overview summary thing. I have two points this morning. Um, only two, which is, uh, you know, for a preacher, very difficult. I only have two. But uh, here's my two points. They're very profound. Uh, point number one, verse 12. <laughs> um, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That's my first point. Point two, why? 
Why did the Spirit immediately drive him out into the wilderness? So let's take a look first at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, guys, uh, both Matthew's account and Luke's account, they both say that the Spirit led him. Mark says the Spirit drove him. But the point's the same. The Holy Spirit initiates this event. Um, Jesus was not cornered. He was not surprised. He was led, yea, even driven into this confrontation. Guys, I, I'm, I'm fully convinced that if Satan could have avoided this showdown, he would have. But he couldn't. Because Satan does what God tells him to do, just like the rest of creation. Gang, this event, this temptation event, has been scheduled since Genesis 3. It's been on the books ever since Adam failed way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. God set this meeting up just like he promised he would in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, guys, do you realize what that means? That means that Jesus Christ was right where he was supposed to be doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing, right smack dab in the center of God's will, and all hell broke loose, literally. (laughs) I'm on a lifelong crusade. Here's my crusade. I'm trying to overturn a proverb that exists in the minds of Christians that ain't so. Here's the proverb. You've probably used it. It goes like this. The safest place in all of the world to be is in the center of God's will. That ain't so. The best place to be is the center of God's will, yes. But gang, it may not be the safest. Evangelicalism has concocted a religion that, that, in, in, in which we've convinced ourselves that God's optimal desire for us is some kind of spiritual bubble where we we, we risk nothing, we, we, um, we, we sacrifice nothing, we lose nothing, and we, and we worry about nothing. Folks, Jesus Christ isn't died to deliver us from difficulty. He died to deliver us from meaninglessness. He, he meets unbelievable opposition and trial and temptation and difficulty while doing exactly what God had asked him to do, being exactly where God asked him to be. Gang, the message of 21st century evangelicalism is that God wants to keep you safe. 
we've turned Jesus into somebody who has promised to meet all of our creature comforts. You didn't get that in here. No, no, no. We made that up. Gang, years ago, um, I had a woman call me, and, and she's, a, she's a dear believer, a precious woman who, and I'm telling you, life was tough for her at the point at which she called me. And um, in her tears, she's crying over the phone, and she says, why is all this happening to me? I mean, I'm trying so hard to please God. Gang, do you see what that implies? Apparently, this dear soul had never read this story. Because Christ wasn't trying to please God. He was pleasing God. And he was right where he was supposed to be. And he got slammed. Gang, no matter how well you live your life and how righteous you may be, it's not going to insulate you from trouble. This is not heaven. <laughs> I, I tell you what, let's do it like this. Let's imagine that you were to live your life as well as it can possibly be lived, making righteous choice after righteous choice after righteous choice, pleasing God. How do you expect your life to go? You see it? It's that parable, that proverb, that, you know. I, I tell you, let's, let's look at it from the other end, the converse. Let's imagine that you live your life really badly, unrighteously, and you do nothing to please God. How do you expect that life to go? I'll give you an example. Do you know the name Manasseh? You know that name? Manasseh was one of the kings in Jerusalem, and he has to be the most wicked of, ever, of all kings that ruled in Jerusalem. If he wasn't the most wicked, he was certainly in the top three. But, you know, he ruled for 55 years in Jerusalem, 15 years longer than David. And there is not one mention in 2 Kings 21, not one mention of anything bad ever happening to him. Do you see it? It's this, it's this notion that exists among us that if I make right choices and do all the right things that my life is going to, I'm going to avoid trouble. Gang, Jesus did live well, and he got crucified. As if the Father said to him, you obey me, and I'm going to crush you. Gang, God is trying to produce a people who are willing to trust him, even when he doesn't protect them from temptation and trial and difficulty. He's trying to produce a people who are so convinced and so are so convinced that he is and heaven awaits them that even when things get difficulty, they don't cut and run. Let me mention one other thing about verse 12 and then we'll move on as to why. But guys, you, 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 you 
got to notice that it, this temptation comes immediately after the baptism. The newly baptized. <laughs> you got to prepare for the onset of temptation, and I hope you understand why. My dear friend, if you're new in the faith or young to the faith, you as a new Christian may have ex- never have experienced anything like what you're experiencing now. You, you do understand why, don't you? I mean, you are, you, 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 you are swimming upstream, perhaps for the first time in your life. If God is who we say He is, and He comes to dwell within your soul, would you not at least expect some minor disruptions? That's why. That is... That's why you're facing things that you've never faced before. Because now you belong to the living God. Now, that's a perfect segue into my, uh, my, my second point, And that is, why does Satan, excuse me, why does the Spirit lead Jesus Christ out to be tempted? Um, why, is, why is Christ led to face, why is he driven out here? You know, guys, when Jesus taught us to pray, that's the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier. That's one of the reasons I prayed it this morning. There is a clause in it that we pray. We pray this. Lead us not into temptation. And yet the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into temptation. Why? Well, obviously God is up to something. But what's he up to? Let me mention three things. Gang, there's a lot of places that we could go in this book to, to answer my question of why. And, and none of them would be simple. What I've sought to do is, is to define the simplest, the easiest. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, if you'd like to look at it. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 45. All we're trying to do is answer, why did God lead Jesus out here to be tempted? Um, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It says this. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now notice, first of all, guys, that Jesus is not called the second Adam. That would imply, perhaps, that there's going to be a third Adam. There's not. He's called the last Adam. But Jesus Christ is being compared to Adam number one. Um, He is... Jesus is... Being tempted, as was Adam number one, but the marked difference is Jesus is succeeding where Adam number one failed. Adam number one, uh, representing mankind, out in a garden where there was no sin, next to his wife, alongside him, no sin existed. When he was tempted, he failed. Jesus, the last Adam, representing his people in a wilderness, not a garden, uh, not with his wife by his side, but with wild beasts there, in a culture that was ravaged by sin, when he was tempted, he succeeded. He, he won. Gang, why was he out there? He was out there for me. 
He was out there for his people. Gang, listen to him. When, when, when Satan says, uh, man shall not, uh, when, uh, when he says, turn those stones into bread, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Man? Man, what? You're, he, he's not a man, at least in our terms. But the whole idea is that Jesus Christ is out there representing you. Our substitute overcame temptation. He won. And that victory is my victory. Gang, it's only a sinless Savior that can save someone as wicked as I am. He faced temptation and he won. Representing me. Now that's great, but that's only half the good news. Let me show you the other, there's actually two more things. That is, again, why did God lead him out? Why did God the Holy Spirit lead him out there? Because he had to represent me and you. But there's another thing, guys. In, in that, that book that I alluded to earlier, uh, Dostoevsky's book, he calls the temptation experience a miracle of restraint. Let me try to explain what, what he meant. Folks. Everything that Satan did out there was, was aimed at getting Jesus to bypass the cross. Uh, Satan offers three shortcuts to Jesus. First of all, he says, if you are the Son of God. Well, the baptism, God had just spoken and says he is the Son of God. What Satan is saying is, why don't you, why don't you question? Why don't you call into question the words that God has said to you? Oh, Adam failed that one. But the Son of Man didn't. Um, It's just a simple issue of bread. It's just a simple issue of hunger. Use your own, uh, your, your power to meet your own needs. I mean, look out for number one out there. Mm, Adam failed that one too. But... In the midst of this, Jesus is being asked to resist self-provision. The second temptation. Jump off of that, that ledge. I mean, you want to attract people, don't you? Then, then just jump off a building. Spring for the dramatic. Prove your faith not by climbing up some cross. Prove your faith by flinging yourself down. And boy, the people will come out of the woodwork. Just just do a couple of celestial tricks. Show them some divine magic. Cut some corners. Take some shortcuts. And in that temptation, Jesus must resist self-promotion. Then the last one. You know, you want all these people in their glory, don't you? Well, I'll give them to you. I mean, didn't you come to take over the world? Well, I can give you that. All you got to do is worship me without all that bloodletting. Get the kingdom. Skip the cross. And there he must resist self-protection. So, this, his goal is indeed to win his people. But how? Satan's got a suggestion. 
Just ignore the issues of sin and, and guilt and, 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 and concentrate on the physical and the showy and the big. But whatever you do, stay away from Golgotha. Come down from that cross. But gang, for Jesus to save me, he couldn't save himself. Life for me meant death to him. What you see taking place in the temptation is a miracle of restraint. Because is there another way to accomplish this, Father? Because if I, if you could come up with another way, I'd sure like that. No, there's not. And so, in a, in a display of resisting self-provision, self-promotion, self-protection, Jesus denies all of self so that he can purchase me. And there's a third thought, and with this we'll quit. Mark makes a statement in, um, in the third chapter. It's a familiar one. You've heard this before. This is verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder the house. You know what that's a reference to, don't you? That's a reference to the temptation. Victory. For Jesus to plunder Satan's house, he's got to bind him up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, consider him bound. And he did that for me. The reason... Gang, that Jesus Christ is led into the, this wilderness to be tempted is because he's acting as my substitute, performing my righteousness and committing himself to die in my place. So that much later... One of the authors of the scriptures would say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are. You know the next three words? Yet without sin. That's mine. That's mine. One for me. By the Savior who met in a titanic struggle and resisted all those temptations so that he could die in my place. 
Bottom line, paradise has been regained. Let's pray. Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind your people that we live in in a world of great promise or We live in a world that contains promises for us for eternity because Jesus Christ has accomplished all that's necessary. Everything that was required, everything that was needed has been done for us by him. Paradise is now ours and all those who will lay hold to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, if if you've led people here this morning who have not yet laid hold of that great gift of eternal life, would you prompt them again? Would you cause them to see the beautiful Savior in all that he did to save his people? We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.